Well, excited to bring the Word of God to you this morning in our ongoing study of Deuteronomy. Uh, if you don't know who I am, my name is Gary. I have the privilege of serving on the staff here. I serve as the senior pastor. And this morning, I'm also excited to share with you on behalf of our elder team uh, that we have selected as our children's ministry director, Tanya Patton. And we're really excited about that. So, yeah, you can celebrate that. Now, Tanya's been serving as our interim uh, over the last several months, and yet we had seven uh, really great candidates that applied for this position. We had three rounds of interviews. Uh, there were eight people involved in those conversations, some who have early childhood uh, background, others who um, have children's ministry background as well or training. And uh, we really feel confident the Lord led us to Tanya for this particular season. But the other thing that we learned through this process, or was reinforced rather, is just how blessed we are as a church. Uh, and just uh, men and women who came forward and, and always do in these types of situations, particularly where kids are involved. Perhaps that's because that's our DNA. But just gifted, passionate, wonderful people. And so we're thankful for that process. In, in fact, speaking of children and kids and parenting and so on and so forth, one of the surprises of the text this morning is this notion of God as a parent. Uh, God is a loving father. The fact that God's, uh, his judgments, his gifts, and even his expectation of us to obey him really reveal his heart as a parent, both in a maternal way, that is a motherly way, but also in a paternal way, as a, in a fatherly way, which might be what we expect more. And so we're going to look at both of those themes this morning in the scripture, in Deuteronomy chapter 11. And so uh, why don't you uh, join me in a word of prayer, and then we'll, we'll look at Deuteronomy. Our God and Father, we... Um, God, we come before your word this morning, humbled that you would have a word for each one of us from these words that were written originally in Hebrew around the 15th century B.C. Uh, to a nomadic people who were about to enter their permanent place of residence, so to speak. And God, we're just, we marvel at that, that you would superintend by your Holy Spirit something that you want us to hear today. And so, Lord, would you be our teacher? Would you help to us to open our minds and hearts? And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to jump right into the text this morning. We're going to take it in a couple of different sections. We begin this morning uh, with Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 1 through 7. And remember, this is coming from Moses to his people, to those who've come out of Egypt and the second generation of those folks. And he begins this way. He says, Therefore, love the Lord your God and always keep his mandate and his statutes and ordinances and commands. Understand today that it is not your children who experienced or saw the discipline of the Lord your God, his greatness, his strong hand and outstretched arm, his signs, and the works he did in Egypt to Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and all his land. What he did to Egypt's army, its horses and chariots, when he made the water of the Red Sea flow over them as they pursued you, and he destroyed them completely. What he did to you in the wilderness until you reached this place, and what he did to Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab, the Reubenite. When in the middle of the whole Israelite camp, the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them, their households, their tents, and every living thing with them, your own eyes have seen every great work that the Lord has done. So in, right away in this first section, we have that continuing theme of remember. Right? God, through Moses, is calling his people to remember. Here it's to remember his judgments. And we're going to look at that there in just a moment. But there's a sense where God is sort of pinpointing this idea of, I'm talking to you. Those of you listening within the sound of my voice, Moses is saying. And, and I think a loose application for us this morning of that is, is that God is talking to, to you. He's, he's certainly spoken to my heart this week, and I've had to wrestle through some of the challenges that God has in the text. One of the interesting things about preaching 
is that God does in us uh, what he has to do first before we ever come to you. And there has to be an open receptivity to what God is doing. And sometimes there's not, right? Sometimes there's resistance and chafing. But here's the point this morning. If you came to church or you're tuning in online, that is not happenstance. God would say from this text, I'm talking to you. There's a message for you to hear. Now, in the context of Israel here, he's already said in chapter 5, he, God, did not make this covenant with our ancestors, but with all of us who are alive here today. Speaking of the generation previous to them. Remember that their parents' generation have all died in the wilderness because they were disobedient. And so God is dealing with this second generation. But now he comes to and speaks about their children. He says in verses 2 and 7, Understand today that it is not your children who experienced or saw the discipline of the Lord your God. Your own eyes have seen every great work the Lord has done. And so now he's speaking directly to them. Now certainly, as we're going to see in the text very quickly, uh, he's not omitting their children. In fact, he's speaking to this generation that they would, in fact, convey the faithfulness of God and even his judgments to the next generation. But here's the big point of what God is saying. You're accountable for what you know. You're accountable for what you know and what you've experienced. Your parents' generation is gone. Your children did not experience the deliverances and the judgments uh, that I carried out in Egypt and in your own uh, community. But you did, and you're accountable for what you know. That's true for us here today. We are accountable for what we know. The fact that we have access to the gospel in the manner in which we do, we're accountable for that. You know, one of the interesting philosophical questions that often comes into conversations about apologetics, that is the defense of the Christian faith, goes something like this. What about those indigenous or tribal peoples like Aborigines who live out in the middle of nowhere and they don't have access to the gospel, they've never had a missionary come to them? Fair question, right? It's a, it's a wrestling question. There's several ways to answer that, and, and not to be smug. I'll just give you them really quick, because the real answer is, you know, there's a sense in which we're not sure. But there, there are three ways you can respond biblically to that. Number one, that God is sovereign, and that he has the big picture in view, and, it, and do you trust him to do what he wants to do or desires to do or what his will is, even with situations that you can't understand? Certainly, Romans 1 teaches us that God reveals himself even through creation and that the heart that seeks him will never be cast away. There's also the idea that there could be generational sin at work in an unreached people group, right? That there was a a missionary or an opportunity to receive the gospel two, three, or four generations ago that was flatly rejected. Complicated answers, but here's the point of what Moses is saying to this generation. Your parents are gone. We're not talking about your kids because they didn't experience this. You're accountable for what you know. And so when we ask those philosophical, hypothetical questions, the the other part of the answer is many of us have two, six, eight, 15 Bibles in our houses, right? We have access to the internet and to a a myriad of great Bible teaching, even just through YouTube. We have the ability and the freedom without reprisal to be gathered here or watching online today to hear the Word of God taught. My goodness, if that doesn't leave an impression on us this morning as our brothers and sisters in Christ, in Ukraine, and many parts of Eastern Europe even now, are unsure of that, that future. Our brothers and sisters in Ukraine are worshiping in subway tunnels and in barns in the outskirts of cities this morning. We're accountable for what we know, and part of what we know, what we've experienced, is that we have easy access to the truths of God in our time. More we could say on that. 
but we're accountable for what we know. And so God brings to mind or brings to bear two judgments to his people to remember. The first judgment is a judgment sort of outside of the community of God's people. It's the judgment of Egypt. The second judgment is inside the community of God's people in the rebellion of Korah that we'll talk about in just a moment. And in that first judgment, God is talking about the nature of his protection of his people. The first principle that we learn is that God protects his people in his judgments. Listen to what Moses says uh, here in Deuteronomy 11. He says, what he, that is God, did to Egypt's army, its horses and chariots, when he made the water of the Red Sea flow over them as he pursued, or as they pursued you. God, God is saying that, that part of his judgment is to protect his people. And by the way, for my note, talker, note takers this morning, Exodus chapters 14 and 15. Exodus 14 and 15. Exodus 14 gives you the account of Egypt being judged in the deliverance of Israel. Exodus 15 is the song that Moses writes in response to and sings about God's destruction of Egypt's army in worship to him. In other words, the miracle of the Red Sea isn't just the fact that the Israelites went through unscathed, that this natural miracle, if you will, of the, of the sea parting, but also of the timing of the sea coming back together and the armies of Egypt being drowned. And destroyed. That's part of the miracle. And God makes the point that his judgments are for the protection of his people. Psalm 37 says it this way. For the Lord loves justice and will not abandon his faithful ones. They are kept safe forever, but the children of the wicked will be destroyed. You know, as we think about, as we think about global events this morning, these are promises that I'm sure that our brothers and sisters in Christ overseas are clinging to, that God will protect them even in his judgments. But God doesn't just protect in his judgments, he also disciplines in his judgments. And so again, if you're looking for more deep dive this week, Numbers chapter 16 gives us the story of Korah's rebellion where Dathan and Abiram play this key role in leading a rebellion against Moses and ultimately against God's authority over them and their people. And God responds, and I love how in the Bible, both in, in Numbers and here in Deuteronomy, it personifies the planet, right? It says that the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them. And if you get this real vivid imagery, that, that the earth opens its mouth. It doesn't just swallow Dathan and Abiram, but their families, their livestock, their tents, everything that they own. God's judgment is complete and it's swift. And it's to discipline his people, to, to make uh, great the point of his holiness, God protects his people in his judgments. He also disciplines his people in his judgments. Now, this principle holds true in the New Testament. As we come to the New Testament, uh, probably the most succinct teaching on God's discipline is in Hebrews chapter 12. And the writer of Hebrews says this, For the Lord disciplines the one he loves, when he accepts as a son. Verse 10, For our earthly fathers disciplined us for a short time, based on what seemed good to them, but he does it for our benefit so that we can share in his holiness. Now, so this, there's this, in these first seven verses, almost a paternal, fatherly idea of God's discipline, but perhaps you had a lousy example as a father. God's example is perfect, that he disciplines his people in his judgments. As we come to the New Testament, however, and, and Hebrews 12 makes this really clear, one really important truth for you this morning, if you're a believer in Jesus, the discipline of God, of those of us who have trusted in faith in Jesus for our salvation, is never any longer punitive. 
In other words, it's not to punish us for eternity for our sins and, and our rebellion against him. Why? Because Jesus paid that penalty on the cross. Jesus took the full wrath of God for every sin you will ever commit, have committed, or will commit. Our sins, are, from a punitive standpoint, are completely paid for. A race, Psalm says, as far as the east is from the west. There is nothing we have to fear, including death itself. Jesus took the full penalty. And so discipline, the writer of Hebrews says it really clearly right here, uh, verse 10, but he, God, does it for our benefit so that we may share in his holiness. Here's the deal. If you're a believer in Jesus, God's discipline in, in your life is always restorative and always has holiness as its goal. It is always restorative and always has holiness in its goal. It's sanctifying. It's that God is moving you toward being more like his son, Jesus. We should take great comfort in that. I don't know what the trials of your life, your day, your week are. And I couldn't speak to or make a judgment as to whether that's God's discipline in your life. Particularly if there's been some sin that God is uh, bringing his discipline into your life for. Only you and the Lord know that. But if you are in that season, or if you have experienced that, you can probably speak experientially to others of this wisdom. That God's discipline was never punitive to you. That it was tender it was perfect in the sense of being consistent and just, and it was ultimately to make you more like Jesus. So if you're in that season now, hang in there. He's a perfect father. He's a loving father. In fact, the question I've been asking this week is I kind of think about this ideologically, even apart from the scripture. If I were envisioning the kind of God I wanted to worship that had this sort of fatherly quality, isn't this the kind of heavenly father that I would seek? A heavenly father who isn't, uh, th uh, doesn't move according to his emotions, is inconsistent or shows partiality and takes bribes as the previous chapter had spoken about. No, he's a God who doesn't do those things. He's perfectly consistent. He's gentle. He's a loving father. And the reason that I know that that's the kind of God that I want to worship, a short, uh, aside from what the Bible teaches us, is because that's the kind of father that I want to be. That's the kind of dad I want to be to my kids. In fact, I'm kind of looking backwards a little bit. My kids, most of them, I have four children, are through their formative years, or at least at the near end of that. But, you know, when my children were small, we have four of them, and when it was at that season where they could totally overwhelm the beachhead, so to speak, in terms of having two parents, right, in those days, I didn't always respond this way. I wasn't the biblical, or the ideal picture of a biblical father. I didn't model God's kind of fatherly love all the time. Sometimes I did respond out of irritability, selfishness, partiality, or whatever it might be. You say, this morning perhaps, you say, well, I don't have children. Those, those years are behind me, or I'm young and single. Well, what kind of a boss or a supervisor do you want to be? Isn't this the kind of leader that you want to be? What kind of roommate do you want to be if you're the alpha in that relationship? That might lead to some interesting lunch conversation, uh, by the way, if you're hanging out with your friends at lunchtime today. But isn't this the kind of leader in whatever context that we want to be, that, that those that we are, are, are correcting, that we're doing so for their flourishing, that we're doing so that they would be more like, if, if it's in a Christian context, more like Jesus. But even in a non-Christian context, like in, your, in your workplace, that they would be more men and women of character, that they would grow as people. God is a perfect father. 
In the next section, we see that, that this perfect father, and, and I get the sense, I can't say this from a scholarly point of view, but, but just an intuition about the text as Moses writes to here, I get the sense that Moses is, uh, is eager to, to share and excited about the nature of how he unveils the gift that God wants to give his people. Now, he's talked about the promised land before, but I want you to know the vivid, descriptive, tender language that God describes the promised land with. We're going to read verses 8 Uh, to 17. It says this. Moses begins, he says, keep every command I'm giving you today so that you may have the strength to cross into and possess the land you're going to inherit. And so that you may live long in the land the Lord swore to your fathers to give them and their descendants. A land flowing with milk and honey. Well, we've we've heard that description before, but listen to how he continues. He says, the land you're entering to possess is not like the land of Egypt from which you've come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated by hand as in a vegetable garden. But the land you are entering to possess is a land of mountains and valleys, watered by rain from the sky. It is a land the Lord your God cares for. He is always watching over it from the beginning to the end of the year. If you carefully obey my commands I'm giving you today to love the Lord your God and worship him with all your heart and your soul, I will provide rain for your land in the proper time, the autumn and spring rains, and you will harvest your grain, new wine, and fresh oil. I will provide grass for your fields, for your livestock. You will eat and be satisfied. Be careful that you are not enticed to turn aside and serve and bow down in worship to other gods. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you. He will shut the sky and there will be no rain. The land will not yield its produce and you will perish quickly from the good land the Lord is giving you. Now he ends that section kind of where Romans 8 ended, right? About the consistency of God's judgments and his fatherly worship. That God's people are not exempt from his holiness. In fact, I think we're going to see in the text that they're even more so implored to his holiness. By the very nature of their relationship with him. But Moses spends the majority of this time talking about God's good gift to them. And he begins with, twice he says, so that, follow him, obey him, walk with him, so that you can have the privilege of receiving that which he's been working on and, and, and preparing to give you and sort of holding in reserve for all this time. And you get the sense behind that that God is delighted to give this good gift to his people. In a sense... There's a maternal or, or a motherly, a tender tenderness to God's gift-giving here. Say it another way, if you're familiar with the five love languages paradigm for understanding how we relate to one another, if you're a gift-giver, you're probably resonating with that passage we just read. You probably take great time, you put a lot of thought into, you carefully put together with, great, uh, with resources and passion that gift for that loved one or that friend, and you're excited to, to give them Not just a gift, but a piece of your heart. It's the very essence of what what God is talking about here through his servant Moses. It's God's maternal heart, if you will. I had this pointed out a little bit more clearly, and this is consistent throughout Scripture, but in the biblical text this week. On Tuesdays, we gather as a staff at noon, and we, uh, we have lunch together. We kind of break bread together. We share our lives. We talk. We pray for each other. We pray for you. We pray for our church family. And, and typically, I'll ask one of the staff to share something that's just on their heart from their, their quiet time, their walk with the Lord, their devotion time, whatever, just something that the Lord's impressed on them that they want to share with the team. And our missions pastor, Mike Bontempo, this week shared this uh, scripture. And, and in this passage in Isaiah, Isaiah is talking about the restoration of Jerusalem and God's people Israel. 
And note the language of maternity, that is the motherly nurturing language, and how God moves from Jerusalem and Israel and begins to talk about himself. Listen to what he says. He says, for this is what the Lord says. I will make peace flow to her, her being Jerusalem, like a river, and the wealth of the nations like a flood. You, that is God's people, the Israelites, will nurse and be carried on her hip and bounced on her lap. As a mother comforts her son, so I will comfort you. And you will be comforted in Jerusalem. You will see, you will rejoice, and you will flourish like the grass. Then the Lord's power will be revealed to his servants, and he will show his wrath against the nations. God actually uses the imagery of a mother with a toddler on her hips, so to speak. But then he turns the language to speak about his care care for them. A God who is nurturing, tender, even in preparing his gifts, as it were. We really do see this theme throughout Scripture, and perhaps nowhere more clearly than in the Gospels when Jesus says, in this case in Luke's Gospel, as he's speaking again of Jerusalem, 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 you who kill the prophets and those who have been sent to you, how I long to gather you together as a hen gathers her chicks. And one, one version of this passage says, but you would have none of it. And so your land lies desolate. This is a lament of Jesus over the disobedience and rebellion of his people over the centuries. And Jesus uses this sort of barnyard illustration of this this, uh, sort of unseen, intimate imagery of a mother hen caring for her chicks. This is God Almighty, the God of the universe in human flesh, speaking in these tender terms. God is perfect in his fatherly love. He is perfect in his motherly love. And it's sort of in that spirit that through Moses, God is unleashing the idea of of the lavishness of this gift he wants to give his people. And what he does, what Moses does, is he contrasts it with Egypt. Remember a couple chapters ago, we had this notion that that the Israelites were kind of uh, uh, yearning in a delusional way for the great days they had in Egypt, right, when they were in, in slavery. And Moses kind of plays on that. He says, you know, you think the land of Egypt was something. Right? You thought that was fertile land. What God has in store to you, the promised land, the land of Canaan, he's bringing you to, some of your versions will say, is watered from the very heavens itself. It's a land that God has personally, tenderly cared after, that he's preserved and has ready for you specifically. It's a land he delights to give you. It's a good gift of God. And you know what's fascinating about, and we talked about this from Corinthians and earlier in Deuteronomy, as we look at the biblical pictures, the foreshadowing, what the, what the theological term is the type here. The land of Canaan, the promised land, is a symbol of our eternal inheritance after this life. The writer of Hebrews says that the people of God never actually entered God's rest in the promised land, but there is a rest that is yet to come for those who have trusted in Jesus. That the promised land, if Moses is saying, you thought Egypt was something, then then God would say to us as we look at the Old Testament, the promised land, you think the promised land was something, it's nothing compared to what is yet to come. That everything in this life that is good and redeemable and worthy and wonderful is just a foretaste, the smallest foretaste of the glory that we are to inherit in eternity as we are with him. And again, our brothers and sisters around the world, and particularly in in Ukraine, some who have already lost their lives, they are stepping into that eternal inheritance. As tragic as their circumstances are, we have eternity to look forward to. Listen to what Peter says in line with this. He says in, in his first letter, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of his great mercy, he has given us 
What has he given us? New birth into a living hope. What is the living hope? It is that this eternal inheritance that we have to come. An inheritance that is imperishable, that it is not subject to decay. It is an inheritance that's undefiled, that's completely pure, it's kept from all evil and sin, and it's an inheritance that's unfading, it's eternal. And some of your versions will say, reserved in heaven for you or kept for you. God is keeping it just like he was keeping the promised land for his people to inherit. He is keeping it for us today. And then Peter concludes this thought. He says, you are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Folks, this life is but a blip. It is eternity for which we ought to be living. And and the conviction that I've had this week is that we ought to be cherishing the gospel above all else. The gospel is something that we are to treasure and to cherish. It's what Jesus teaches in his micro parable that we looked at last summer. When he says this, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy, he went and sold all that he had and bought that field. Now, by way of reminder, parables are are, are made up as a rhetorical device to teach us one singular point. And so we're not supposed to parse the parable, why didn't he do this with the treasure or that? No, what is the point that Jesus wants us to learn? It's that the gospel, the kingdom of heaven, and the gospel is but the means and the message of how to enter the kingdom of heaven, is to be prized over everything else in our lives, cherished even. That I ought to be willing to mortgage everything I've got going on in my life for the sake of the gospel, and so often I'm not. I live with my feet too planted on this ground and I lose sight of that eternal treasure that is to come a few of us got a pretty stark wake up to that this week let me take a little bit of an off-ramp here for a few minutes we're really excited about this event coming in March piercing the darkness it's Friday night March 11th you got to register it's a combined men's and women's event I encourage you to sign up today a big thrust of this time is that we're going to hear from people who communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ in places where it's not welcome. One of the people that's coming is my good friend Michael Foster. Michael and his wife lead a church in Romania, but he also does missions work and short-term missions teams all over the world, most often in places that are hostile to the gospel. As a sidebar to my sidebar here, Michael and his wife Denisa, he told me yesterday, there are 43 people on their way to his home, which is no bigger than my home and yours, to live with him for an undetermined amount of time from Ukraine. Ukraine borders Romania. And so we're praying as elders about how God would have us to partner. We're already sending them some money, but we're praying as a church. We also have, there's a nephew of someone who attends this church, Kyle Duba, who's a missionary in Poland. The camp that that Kyle works with has 50 families on their way there now to live at this camp for an undetermined amount of time. And these are people who are are stepping into the the breach, so to speak, of this situation in Ukraine. And we will be bringing you forward more information on what we're going to do about that going forward. God's given us at least two personal connections in Romania and Poland that directly uh, border Ukraine. But I digress from my digression. (laughs) 
One of the other people we want to bring here is a missionary from a country that is extremely hostile to the gospel. And he's an indigenous missionary pastor. He might be all of like 32 years old. And a few of us were on staff with him this week. And he was sharing how, he, you know, God called him into this place where there, there are no Christians. It's a completely unreached area. And there's a church that's been birthed there. And he's excited to share our story, his story about that and what God has done. But in the process of telling how that all has happened, it involved several beatings that he undertook personally. He was beaten uh, at least twice, and had bones broken. And then he said this, he said, I'm not like Paul the Apostle, I'm weak. And I'm like, bro, if that's weakness, I'm hosed, because I don't know what I'd do in that circumstance. I don't know what I would do if 43 people said they were headed my way and they were going to live with me for an... <laughs> I mean, think about it. And so we're going to hear from these folks with sort of the idea of asking this question of ourselves, if they can, then what am I doing? What is God calling me to? Kind of pulling it together to our message this morning. If God is a perfect loving father and a perfect loving mother and his maternal love toward us. And if that's expressed in his judgments and his gifts and his expectations of me, what then will I do? It's a powerful thought had me wrestling with, do I really cherish the gospel? What are the things, you know, you think about growing in life, like, well, I really want to see my children married, or I want to have grandchildren, or if you're a young person, I really want to be married before the Lord returns. Whatever those things are, do I cherish the gospel beyond that thing? Some of you, you need to be asked the question, have you believed the gospel? You can't cherish what you haven't believed. What does it mean to believe the gospel? Quite simply, it means that I recognize that in myself there is no good thing. My attitudes, my actions, all of it is ultimately in rebellion against God, and I turn from that. But I also turn from trying to earn my own way, from making my good stuff outweigh my bad stuff, from trying to earn heaven or whatever, whatever I'm pursuing. I turn from all of it. It's the biblical word is repentance. And I run to Jesus, to a Jesus who went to a Roman cross, where he was crucified, his blood was shed. And the Bible teaches that when Jesus' blood was shed, that God poured out the, his wrath on Jesus instead of you, instead of me. And that every sin we've ever committed or will commit was paid for in that moment. If we will just receive what Jesus has done by faith and begin to walk with him. It's that simple. Repent and believe. Do I cherish the gospel? Well, Moses uh, really kind of pushes his people on this idea of obedience. He's already talked about it once in this chapter, several in the, in the previous. But he comes back to it again. And you'll note the language he uses here is right out of Deuteronomy 6. It's almost repeated verbatim. Because that whole idea that, hey, I'm talking to you and you're accountable for what you know is now so that that gets passed on to your children. Listen to what he says. Imprint these words of mine on your hearts and minds. Bind them as a sign on your hands. Let them be a symbol on your foreheads. Teach them to your children, talking about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Write them on the doorposts of your houses and on your city gates, so that as long as the heavens are above the earth, your days and those of your children may be many in the land the Lord swore to give your fathers. For if you carefully observe every one of these commands I'm giving you to follow, to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, and to remain faithful to him, and then listen to these lavish blessings. Beyond the inheritance of the land, he says, the Lord will drive out all these nations before you, and you will drive out nations greater and stronger than you. Every place the sole of your foot treads will be yours. Your territory will extend from the wilderness to Lebanon and from the Euphrates River to the Mediterranean Sea. No one will be able to stand against you. 
The Lord your God will put fear and dread of you in all the land where you set your foot as he promised you. God will continue to bless, but he calls his people to obedience. Yes, God's judgments, his gifts reveal his loving heart as a heavenly parent, but also his expectation of me to respond in obedience does as well. In fact, our love for God is best expressed in obedience. We could say it this way. Obedience is the currency of our faith. Obedience is the currency of our faith. Moses says it here in verse 22. If you carefully observe every one of these commands I'm giving you to follow. You say, well, that's the Old Testament. Jesus says in John 14, if you love me, then keep my commands. If then, if you love me, keep my commands. How? Why? Because the word of the, the Holy Spirit of God comes in when we exhibit repentance and faith, and he begins this transformative work in us. There's a very real sense in which our salvation is absolutely free, and yet it will cost us everything we have. Walking with Jesus will. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the gospel bids that we come and die. Jesus says it this way in Matthew's gospel. He says this to his disciples. If anyone wants to follow after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life because of me will find it. I'm going to ask the band to come, prepare to lead us in a final song as we wrap up this, this final point. What is Jesus talking about there? He's talking about an absolute surrender, a yieldedness, an obedience to God, where I don't hold anything sort of off in reserve on my own. And I will tell you there are times in my life from a sinful perspective where it's that lustful thought or that, that unrighteous, that, that sinful anger or that impatience or irritability, whatever, whatever it is, that I hold it over here and say, in this moment, God, I cherish this more than I do you or your gospel, if I'm honest. It doesn't have to be something sinful. It might be my portfolio. It might be the success in my career. It might be the success of my children. That I, in this moment, God, this thing, I'm not giving that up. I love this more than I love you. And God is calling his people. And remember, he says, I'm talking to you. And this is the question I've wrestled with all week. Where's the place... What are the things that are sort of tucked in a closet somewhere? And God's saying, surrender it. We want to take some time as we wrap up the service this morning to really allow that to, to you just to meditate on that idea. What does it look like to take up your cross? What does it look like you to surrender in obedience? And I think one of the powerful, most powerful ways to do that is through music. So we're going to stand, we're going to sing this song together.